Hello, everyone. This is John Fudul of the Geopolitics This Week podcast. And I just want to, again, thank all of you for your support and being active listeners of the podcast. And uh, to start off today, we're going to be discussing one of the more contentious topics to come out of 2020 that wasn't the coronavirus. Uh, So, of course, we're going to be talking about the 2020 presidential election. Everyone's favorite and least favorite topic to talk about. Um, So here's how I'm gonna structure this conversation. I'm gonna start with an introduction, talking about the results of the election and some of the two mistruths propelled by both sides that I think need to be dispelled up front. And then we're gonna talk about the likely results of the 2020 election prior to coronavirus, talk about how the pandemic changed the election, uh, talk about what cost to trump this election and how it's a combination of long-term weaknesses caused by not fulfilling campaign promises, plus um, his handling of the coronavirus pandemic within the United States. Then we'll talk about how Biden could have improved his results and where he sort of suffered from. And then we'll talk about the what impact does the 2020 election have on the 2022 midterms in the 2024 general election? And so without a further ado, we shall begin. So the final results, as of right now, as there are currently two races in the Senate that still need to be completed, which is the Georgia runoffs, which finished on January 4th, January 4th of next year, and then there are two remaining House elections that are being contested. Both are leaning Republican, but at least one of them is close enough to where Democrats could pull out a win. So to go through a full tally of the numbers, in the Electoral College, Joseph R. Biden is finishing with 306 electoral votes, while Donald J. Trump, incumbent president, 45th president of the United States, 232 electoral college votes. Of those electoral college votes, Joe Biden has a combined lead in the battleground states of Wisconsin, Georgia, Nevada, and Arizona that is less than 55,000 votes for a total of 43 electoral college votes. That is enough electoral college votes to swing the election back to Trump with a result that would have been uh, roughly 280 to Biden 260. Um, this result and this election was far closer than even the 2016 election between Hillary and Trump. And I think people need to keep that in mind that this was not a Biden blowout. Um, this was very much a very narrow election. Um, in the Senate, um, even this has changed since I wrote the outline last night. Um, especially considering how much turmoil there is about the stimulus checks. Um, If the Georgia runoffs were held today, it is very likely that John Ossoff and Reverend Raphael Warren, uh, geez, I'm forgetting his, Raphael Warnock. There we go. My apologies. If any, if, if Raphael Warnock is listening to this podcast, my apologize for butchering your name. Um, the two Democratic candidates for the Georgia Senate elections would probably win. 
which means the Senate would be tied 50-50, leaving Kamala Harris to break any tiebreakers in the Senate. Um, yesterday, I thought it was very possible that uh, Kelly Loeffner, the perceived stronger of the two Republican candidates, other than uh, David Perdue, uh, would likely defeat Raphael Warnock, who is the weaker of the two Democratic candidates. Um, this could easily change if Republicans agreed to pass the $2,000 um, stimulus check increase that's being supported by the president and by Democrats. I think if that passes, then it looks more like 51 Republicans, 49 Democrats. But if the election was held today, I believe the results would be 50-50. Democrats gain both seats in Georgia. Um, the House picture is a bit more favorable to Republicans, but not much. Um, the House is likely... 222 seats for Democrats and 213 for Republicans. Now, the final number could easily move one or two in either direction, but guaranteed Republicans have 211 seats up from the 291 they previously had in the last election cycle. Now, when we come to talking about what I think the two mistruths propelled by both sides of the aisle, Republican support, um, Trump supporters will hate this, and so will Democratic supporters. The first one, is that this election was always going to be close. It was never going to be a Biden blowout, and it wasn't likely to be a Trump blowout either. Um, Trump was the strongest candidate going into 2020, but became the weakest going into the election cycle. Um, and the second thing, which will upset Democrats the most, is this election was not like every other election. It was not secure. Um, a lot of rules and election integrity laws in all the major swing states were actively undermined by both parties looking to secure votes in a time where voting in person was made exceptionally difficult. Um, the Republican primary didn't suffer from any rescheduled primaries because it was just basically Trump running. And But the Democratic primaries, basically the last third, maybe two-fourths, basically half of the primaries had to be rescheduled for people who wanted to re to vote in person, got pushed back to June and July. And so Democrats had a very clear incentive to make voting by mail or expanding the absentee ballot system in order to ensure elements of their base who are too afraid to go out and vote as Democrats were a lot stronger on coronavirus and emphasizing the dangers of coronavirus. Um, so Democrats maneuvered at the local and state level to open those windows up. Whether or not that opened things up to electoral fraud, I am not going to comment on that. I'm going to let historians and legal experts um, decide whether or not that was a that was valid in this election and whether or not that warrants mention in history books or legal textbooks in the future. Uh, but I think those are the two fundamental mistruths about this election that need to be sort of stated out front before I start talking about my other topics. Um, a sort of third mistruth, um, but it's not really a mistruth because I think people sort of felt like this already, um, but the polls got this election horribly wrong. Um, the polls suffered from a Trump voter absence as um, while Trump was distasteful um, to many voters, prior to the 2016 election, um, but he became virtually untouchable in polling and public circles during his tenure as the 45th president of the United States. 
And so as a result, the participation of Trump voters in um, public polling, with the exception of a couple of pollsters that got it right, um, which include um, Trafalgar polling, big data poll, and Pew polling got most of the um, popular vote guesses right, um, but got some of the state level polling wrong. But in general, um, pollsters need to worry in the future about addressing any biases in future election cycles that have controversial candidates or candidates that are deemed unpalatable by the people in society that are in charge of dictating polls. And so a lot of these pollsters get a lot of their funding from big news organizations that have political messages they want to propel. So some of the pollsters were um, Quinnipiac, for example, were creating polls that catered to their sources of funding. And so a lot of these pollsters are, because they're forced to get funding from news organizations and news sources, or even um, rich benefactors or donors, they were had to create a narrative that said blue wave, even though um, people like me and people in the geopolitical community were like, this election was always going to be close. It's going to come down to a couple of swing states, and the margins are going to be pretty tight. And so I could sort of segue into my next part, which is what were the results of, likely results of the election um, prior to the pandemic, so March. Uh, prior to the virus in March, Trump was the likely victor of the 2020 election, with the exception that, with some exceptions, um, one of those would have been that his performance of 306 electoral votes in the 2016 cycle um, would likely be a similar outcome in this election with other people putting his electoral uh, margin uh, a little bit less. My margin, for example, was that Trump would, could probably win between 290 and 320 electoral votes. Um, a lot of these swing states like Nevada, Arizona, North and South Carolina were going to be pretty close. And North Carolina was exceptionally close. Michigan was close. Wisconsin was close. Pennsylvania was close. Um, overall, this election was always going to be the tight and narrow. And so I think people, um, that was the expectation. Um, when we talk about the strengths of the two candidates and the weaknesses of the two candidates going into the 2020 election cycle, um, Biden uh, has and continues to be a weak candidate. Um, he has low enthusiasm numbers, low turnout at events, debatably a poor choice in a VP candidate in Kamala Harris, and enthusiasm for his campaign camp came primarily from those who hated Trump and wanted him removed. Not because they liked Joe Biden or thought he was a charismatic or inspirational leader. The greatest case for Joe Biden in this election cycle was that he wasn't Trump, and that, therefore he got the electoral edge with uh, moderates and some in circles of independence and some brackets of the age groups where he overperformed in the final result but was underperforming before the virus. Um, Trump was a strong candidate going into the election. Um, the economy had a strong performance in 2018 as a result of the tax cuts basically injecting $2 trillion of stimulus back into the economy. And then a continuation of plus 2% growth in 2019 with the additional bonus of uh, drops in unemployment, some uh, income and average wage growth. Um, and when it comes to backstopping the most important variable in winning an election, the economy, Trump was leading. Um, second, 
he had always had strong enthusiasm within the party with 85% approval or higher. Um, and then between 34, 35 to 40% preference among independents, uh, which ensured an additional 15 to 20% additional votes. And the two groups you need to win in an election are obviously the people in your own party, which Trump had, and second, to be the strong preference among independents. Independents always swing elections, and Trump has always historically performed very well with independents. So getting that out of the way, so we sort of set up the background of what the pandemic changed, what's moving to that. Um, 100%, the winning issue prior to the pandemic was the economy. The economy will determine the outcome of presidential elections more often than not. Um, as people will often blame the president for a downturn in the economy, even though 99% of the time, the president is not responsible for the downturn. Um, Herbert Hoover, during between 1928 through 1932, perfectly good example. Um, he was elected on a very strong economy, um, but lost historically to FDR because the economy tanked and became the Great Depression and then all the other sort of policies he pushed through, like the Smooth-Hawley tariff that made it worse. Um, that's a big example. Um, Jimmy Carter, another good example, led to the Reagan Revolution and uh, Carter's historic loss against Ronald Reagan. And we can go on with other examples. Uh, George W. Uh, Bush Sr. Uh, had sort of a lukewarm economy that was beginning to um, head for a downturn as the Reagan economies began to overheat and start heading downward. Um, but he, Bush's, Bush Sr.'s election could also be determined lost because he promised no new taxes and then he raised taxes. Um, I think people point to that as being the biggest reason why he lost, but the economy sort of taking a bit of a turn for the worst didn't help him either. And so Trump had that 100%. The problem is, is that once the pandemic came into view and became the biggest issue, healthcare and the economy became the top two issues, which often traded for first and second in independent public polls, such as Pew. Um, and so when we start talking about what would determine the election once the virus came into play, we come to basically four different factors. One, healthcare and access to testing and treatment at no cost to citizens. Two, an economic rebound or adequate government support through payment protection, small business loans, PUI, the Pandemic Unemployment Insurance Assistance Program, and direct checks to people in need. Three, consistent public messaging and the generation of a sense of control. Fourth and finally, stability. And so that moves us into what cost Trump the election. In the last eight months of the campaign, going from February to November, in all four categories, Trump suffered horrendously. Um, and for the sake of transparency, um, I was a card-carrying Republican until the start of the year. And now I'm a registered independent. I'm likely going to change that in the future for the sake of transparency. I want to make it absolutely clear that I was a card-carrying Republican, and I still consider myself a Republican. But when it comes to being unbiased in evaluating 
elections and doing an autopsy like this podcast is meant to be. Um, we need to see where the candidates perform the weakest, how they could improve in the future, or how the party on either side of the aisle can learn to perform better. And so when it comes to looking at those four variables I provided for what would the election be determined by, Trump failed in almost every single one of those categories. Um, with healthcare and testing, healthcare has always remained a weak subject for Republicans. The only Republican in recent history that has proposed a solution to healthcare is George W. Bush, Bush Jr. And what he proposed was a semi-dismantling of Social Security and a reformation of Medicare that would see the age of eligibility go up to match the current expected um, living, sort of average living among male and female. That remains broadly unpopular among seniors and even young people who have all of a sudden grown deep attachments to Social Security and Medicare. And as a result, because the Republican solutions are often this, uh, not very, they're not, they're not sexy, they're detested, and they require a lot of cost for people individually and emotionally. As a result, since George W. Bush, Republicans have not touched health care, and the only thing they've ever ran on is repealing the Affordable Care Act, which is Obamacare. Um, not to say that repealing Obamacare isn't necessary. I think it is. Um, as a lot of the things Obamacare did didn't help solve the issue of health insurance costs. It, helped, it caused them to go up. And a lot of that has to do with the mismatch between what people wanted. Obama ran on health care reform when people really wanted health insurance reform. And so it wasn't a equal, equal access to health care issue. It was more that insurance was becoming more and more expensive as the market became more concentrated. And so Democrats, love him or hate him, remain strong on the issue because Obama passed a solution. Even though it wasn't a great solution, they still had a solution. And so Trump would get branded with that with or without Trump, because Republicans are generally weak on the issue. And so as a result, especially after the failure to pass the Obamacare repeal in 2017, and Trump's lack of a plan didn't help him either. And we start talking about the testing, um, early problems in ramping up testing above the needed 500,000 tests a day level to where states could start to reopen and people could start um, approaching life more normally with social distancing and masks. That problem was not overcome until late June to early July. And so a lot of these states um, that needed to be reopened, so big states like California, like Washington, like Oregon, like New York, like Pennsylvania, did not have the numbers to open, which means most states had to rely on numbers provided by lower tests and just hope that the numbers provided by the lower test count reflected reality. Um, that's why states like Texas, Georgia, Florida, North and South Carolina, well, not North Carolina, because I think they never made it to tier three for reopening. I think they only made it to tier two. Um, but a, a lot of these Southern, Midwestern, um, mountain states all essentially reopened to, to tier two or three, uh, all based on lower test numbers, mostly because they couldn't bear the economic costs and so because 
Um, testing wasn't where it needed to be. They just hoped that the lower test numbers reflected reality. Um, for some of these states that bore true, Texas and Florida are good examples, but for states like North and South Dakota, that didn't play out. Um, finally, the failure to control the narrative on the provision of supplies and distribution of protection equipment and ventilators cost the Trump administration a lot of PR that they didn't need to lose. Um, Andrew Cuomo ran daily press briefings that were often, often better managed, better presented, and often better informed. And so when even when Governor Cuomo was pushing to get 40,000 ventilators when his state didn't need that much, people sided with Cuomo because his ability to do PR, manage PR, and present PR were a thousand times in leagues ahead of what the Trump administration needed to do in order to manage the narrative. So that's where he failed in healthcare and testing. On the economy and government support, um, he suffered from the lockdowns. Um, despite the rebounding Q3 of this year of 33.3%, beating expectations of 31% uh, growth, most of the economic comeback hasn't been felt by most of the country as roughly two-fifths of the country was still closed over the summer like California and other states like New York and Washington, while roughly three-fifths of the com country had reopened but were having mixed results on cases. Um, but now that we're in the winter and we're now in the, the, uh, the second wave and with the, the rise of this new mutation that came from the United Kingdom, three-fifths of the, the U.S. economy is back closed with that likely that other third reopening sometime in the spring. All the progress that had been made in the economy between 2017 and 2019 was lost between April and November. And so the winning issue for the Trump campaign, which was the economy, taken away, it can't come back. And so the thing that Trump needed to do in order to sort of stabilize the economy and sort of rebuild his position on the issue is have consistent, large government support programs. If the government is going to shut down the economy, the government should step in to provide the gap between 2019 growth and what growth would be lost. That's what the United Kingdom did. That's what Germany did. And both of them have bet had better economic outcomes for people and workers than the United States. Um, the United Kingdom essentially nationalized the payroll, um, paying workers that businesses could no longer afford to pay. Germany has a similar program, but... In general, the German social welfare state is more sophisticated, so they're able to do it for less money. And so the United States had to have a similar program or at least a nationalization of the payroll in the short term. Um, the best the government ended up coming up with was the payment protection loans, um, which have been essentially a very mixed bag with lots of fraud, um, which was expected with a government program. But the amount of fraud and special favors given in the payment protection loans is outrageous. Um, the direct checks to people should have been monthly instead of the one-time deposit of $1,200 that occurred over the summer. And the expanded unemployment benefits of an extra $600 a week were okay, but they disincentivized people from returning to work. And so nationalizing the payroll would have given people the same amount of pay with government support without having to provide them the extra money that discourages them from going back to work. So providing consistent government support, Trump failed. Um, government support has always been inconsistent. It has always been mixed message in presentation and has in general been uh, prone to fraud and exhibited massive amounts of fraud. He failed on that front. 
Um, finally, mixed administration messaging with Trump saying one thing on Twitter, then acting differently in negotiations. Um, this is no, no better embodied by the recent push by Trump to get $2,000 in checks when the, the administration's position up to that point was $600. And so when even though this was post-election, Trump did a lot of this prior to the 2020 election and even in the middle of this pandemic. And so when you have that sort of mixed messaging on government support programs and economic growth, you suffer from bad PR as well. Three, consistent messaging and a sense of control. This has always been the Achilles heel of Trump. If used properly, Twitter is a much superior platform to get information out to your supporters, your base, and other people who are at least interested in your platform. However, Trump, who has consistently flip-flopped on issues on Twitter, um, the joke on Twitter is that there's always a tweet for everything because people can just go back and see where Trump took the opposite position on an issue, and they can use it and throw it back at him. Happens all the time. Um, Trump has insulted political opponents and even people in his own party. Um, bad PR in general, and it looks makes you look mean and nasty. Um, obviously, people always do this behind the scenes because it's politics, but when you do it in the open, it makes things look worse. Um, and th the third thing he did was also contradict people in his cabinet. Um, this was done consistently with Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci, and whether if you like both of these people, think they're right, think they're wrong, you can't have elements of your cabinet that openly say one thing and then you contradict them. It looks bad for both of you. Um, fourth and finally, the generation of stability. Trump's last minute prep briefings with business leaders, the inconsistent use of the Defense Production Act, and the vaccine creators sort of periodically showing up in these press briefings caught everyone off guard even if the results were positive. Um, whether you like or dislike the Obama administration, the Obama administration had a great PR team. And so if Trump had had the Obama PR team, this all could have been managed better, the presentations could have been done better, and the distribution of the message to states and the sense of control that an administration wants to project wouldn't be there, would have been there rather. Um, but because it wasn't there, the perceived incompetence and contradictions and the lack of understanding the issues in the country tremendously undermined the needed visual of stability in the country. Plus, Trump's volatility increased as his one campaign leg, the strength of the economy, was ripped from him. So instead of trying to pivot to being the wartime president against the invisible enemy, the, the China virus that he liked to call it, um, he still tried to campaign on the strength of the economy, which didn't exist anymore. And so your inability to change the campaign message, like Obama did in 2012, because Obama wanted to run on the economic rebound when a lot of the economic rebound hadn't been felt by most of the country. And so someone finally pulled Obama aside and said, hey, you cannot run in this issue or Mitt Romney is going to win. Obama got the message and he just ran a purely negative campaign against Romney. That worked. Romney had a lot of negatives on him, which made him a bad candidate. But because Obama was willing to listen to advisors who said, you can't run on this anymore, he was able to pull out a win in the 2012 election. Trump needed someone like that. But even if he had someone like that, I don't think he would have listened. And so his inability to pivot from a losing campaign message and sort of whims lackadaisically on the economy when the economy wasn't there anymore, horrible campaign strategy. You can't run a campaign strategy when you're the incumbent president that is nostalgic about an economy that isn't there anymore. That's a losing strategy. His inability to pivot from this likely cost him a segment of his base 
segments of the H bracket, which we'll talk about later. Um, and in general, was just bad. He failed on all four factors that he needed to win the election. He could have had three of these. He could have had half of these. But the fact he didn't have any of them made him extremely weak going to this election. And then we could talk about general Trump weaknesses that existed prior to the election. Trump had a surprising amount of suburban support and support from post-secondary degree holders in the 2016 election against Hillary. He lost most, if not all, that support in the 2020 election with a lot of defections to where Biden was just slightly positive in secondary degree holders, and Trump had narrowed his once 10% lead in suburban households to just 1%. Those are horrendous declines. And those declines make a close election that you should have won to a close election that you lost. And so some of the reason why Trump lost suburban support and why they sort of defected to Biden probably stems from, from three reasons. First, the lack of response against the riots and the growing chaos over the summer. Um, the Black Lives Matter riots um, and protests were rekindled after the um, death of George Floyd. And whether you agree with them or not, um, the protests turned to violence in most urban centers. And as a result, Trump tweeting law and order without actually implementing law and order, not carrying through on threats to nationalize um, the National Guard in some of these states, to federalize them rather, and to deploy them to cities in urban centers and these sort of peripheral sub suburban communities, definitely cost Trump a large segment of suburban support. Suburban communities like stability, they like a strong economy, and they like to know that what they have will be protected. Trump failed at this when the perception was that the riots were threatening the outlying suburban communities in some of these major urban centers. The second reason why he lost suburban support, botching the coronavirus response and horrendous messaging. Like I said, suburbanites like stability. If they feel like you will not be a stable leader, they will defect to a different party. Three, worsening economic conditions. A lot of suburban communities are middle to lower middle class people who are paycheck to paycheck on their mortgages. When the economy tanks because you shut down the economy and then mismanage the, the aid that's supposed to go to people who are out of a job, you lose suburban communities. And so we move on to educated voters and why they defected. Educated voters like three different things. One, they like the perception of intelligent leadership. The Obama administration had five to six different major scandals that would have brought down any number of Republican uh, Republican presidencies. But because Obama's PR team was so good and there was the perception of wise technocratic leadership at the top, he kept educated voters in the 20, 2008 and 2012 election. And so that lack of perception of intelligent leadership and bad cabinet picks or cabinet infighting that was occurring all the time even before the pandemic, you lose educated voters. The second, poor messaging on virtually everything. Um, the Trump administration, as I said, has had horrible PR on virtually everything except for a couple of things that Trump just zeroes in on, and that's like trade. Um, but trade is only an important issue for a segment of the working class, and educated voters are not part of the working class. 
Third and finally, the perceived lack of stable leadership. Just like suburban voters, educated voters like to see someone who is not only intelligent, but also stable at the top. And so when you have these three combinations, you alienate this segment that defected to Trump in 2016. And so we talked to the third group that Trump lost support with, and that was the two age brackets of 45 to 60 and 65 and plus. These are your mature workers and then your retirees. Um, for your mature workers between 45 and 60, a large segment of this voting group is um, white American, white Caucasian Americans, white men in particular, and those who are working class, working class men. These voters are incredibly transactional. Trump ran on a strong campaign on reducing immigration, reshoring manufacturing jobs, increasing wages, the wall, etc. All of these things that were pillars and central to the Trump 2016 party platform were all absent in the 2020 platform. Plus, the fact that he had botched most of these issues during his his uh, tenure as president meant a lot of American working class, American whites, and just American men in general started defecting to Biden is because Trump failed on so many of these fronts. The second reason, lauding uh, criminal justice reform, which was something Trump didn't run on in 2016. In fact, he ran against criminal justice reform and ran on a law and order platform in 2016. And what is often misconceived in American politics is that criminal justice reform is not popular. Um, with suburban communities, with upper income communities, with married um, couples in general, more than 50% of the country supports tougher punishments on criminal justice. In fact, they want to see stronger criminal justice, not reformed criminal justice. Um, if someone were to run on a platform that returned to mandatory minimums, they would probably win an election. But the fact Trump was running on criminal justice reform during the the riots in the summer and early fall made him look extremely weak in these age brackets of between 45 and 90. These people who have older children or young families or people who are retired in these suburban communities that are on the periphery of major urban centers. These people want to protect what they have and they don't want to lose it. The fact that riots were starting to encroach into their zones and some property was vandalized definitely threatens Trump's base with between those who are between 45 and 90. Both he won in 2016. In 2020, he lost the 45 to 65 age bracket and barely clung on to 65 and older. Third and finally, why he lost the support of these groups is um, the collapse of support between these age brackets also likely stems from the botching of coronavirus, which disproportionately hit those that fall on the latter end of the age bracket, the people who are 65 and older um, to even 55 and older, which would allow them to fall into the 45 and 65 age bracket as well. And so when we take a look at these general election weaknesses combined with the the juggernaut that was the, the coronavirus, Trump was incredibly weak going into the 2020 election. Um, and so we move on to how could have Biden improved his results and why the Biden campaign didn't overperform in the sort of blue wave fashion that a lot of people were hoping for. We start with our first reason. Biden, after winning the Democratic primary as a centrist, 
should have ran further to the center. This would have likely pulled more independents and center-right voters, your, your McCain-Romney Republicans, from voting for Trump to vote for Biden. This would have expanded his margins in the states he barely won, won those ones that combined he leads by less than 55,000 votes, resulting in a less valid case for Republicans and Trump to argue mass voter fraud. Again, those states are Arizona, Nevada, Wisconsin, and Georgia. Arizona and Nevada in particular are McCain Republican states, these sort of fiscal conservatives, uh, foreign policy hawks, and people in general who aren't of Trump's base, but they tend to vote with Republican Party, which led by Trump for obvious reasons. Um, but if Biden had ran more towards the center, he likely could have picked up more of those votes and increased his margin to where Trump couldn't question the results of the election. The second reason, the second way Biden could have improved his results um, is choosing a well-liked moderate Democrat from the Midwest or a swing state would have likely pulled additional support from independents, undecided voters, and swung some of these states more decisively for Biden. Kamala Harris was not only one of the first people to drop out of the Democratic presidential primary, but has some of the highest unlikability polling and came from a deep blue state in California. California was never going to go red. Um, the fact that he chose a VP candidate from a state that he was already going to win was a very not strategic decision. Um, as I'll get into in a bit, it was very much a political decision. As when we start looking at the options that Biden could have chosen that probably would have helped his polling or even his results in the final election sprint in, 20, in November, we start to look at two different categories. Those VP candidates that were available without the restriction he self-imposed on himself. And the final um, presidential primary debate with Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden promised that the VP candidate he would select would be not only a woman, but a woman of color. As a result, this essentially eliminated 75% of most of his options, as despite the Democratic Party being a very large significant being women and also minority, there aren't a lot of options in political circles that are both women and minority. And so candidates that were not women of color or just women, that would have been better picks. Uh, Hickenlooper, governor of Colorado. Colorado used to be a red state, and the fact that he could have um, boosted his numbers in a broadly stable mountain state could have improved his results in states like Utah, um, and Nevada, those states that are sort of swing states and that could help strengthen his margins in those areas to where the, the election couldn't be questioned. Tim Ryan in Ohio. Ohio was always going to go to Trump, but instead of being a 10% loss, it could have been a 5 to 4% loss. And so reducing your margin there helps as well. It makes Trump look weak. Beto O'Rourke, former Texas representative and Senate candidate in 2018, almost beat incumbent Ted Cruz. Beto O'Rourke lost less than 4%. He is a Texas Democrat, which means he has to be a moderate. He comes from a Texas state, and he comes from the state of Texas, which was perceived as a swing state in the cycle, even though Trump won it by 6%. If he chosen Beto O'Rourke for VP, Texas would have been a lot closer with the small chance that it could have been a flip. Another one, Andrew Yang, fellow presidential candidate in the 2020 election cycle and tech entrepreneur. 
Um, he has no government experience, but he has high likability numbers in both parties. Um, he wouldn't have swung any states in particular as he's from New York, um, but choosing someone who was well-liked in the campaign and perceived as a competent technocrat would have helped his general overall performance um, with defectors and uncertain Democrats within his own party. And finally, Pete Buttigieg, also a fellow presidential contender and mayor of South Bend, Indiana, while having no federal level experience, he comes from Indiana, which swung a little bit for Biden in this cycle. Even though Trump ended up winning it, he lost it. In a, he won it in a smaller margin he did in 2016. Um, choosing Pete Buttigieg could have easily helped his uh, Joe Biden's performance in the Midwest and even possibly pushed some of these states closer to Democrats. Um, but because he didn't, uh, Trump ended up winning these states, winning these states by similar margins to 2016, if not a little bit less. And even if we placed a restriction of choosing a woman of color back on top, there were still even better candidates than Kamala Harris. Um, Amy Klobuchar, senator of Minnesota, and also another fellow presidential candidate in the 2020 election cycle, um, while her um, perceived favorability numbers are just above 50%. She is popular in a swing state, Minnesota, and she won Democratic district, Republican districts rather, in Minnesota in order to win. She is perceived as, well, she, she's known for her mom jokes, and so she's perceived as a safe VP candidate. <clears throat> and because of her popularity in Minnesota, and predominantly in the Midwest. She could have really helped in places like Wisconsin and Michigan where the margins were very close. Um, we move on to the next one. Val Demings, a junior Florida rep, so someone who was recently elected in the 2016 cycle and former Florida police chief. Um, she would definitely be the most inexperienced of all the options I'm gonna present. Um, but because she is a current representative from Florida in a swing district, and a former police chief means she would have a broad base of support among minorities. She's a very accomplished black woman. Um, and because she's a police chief, she would have at least some appeal to Republicans who are attempted to defect. Um, the third one, Tammy Duckworth, junior Illinois senator elected in 2018 and former Iraq war combat veteran. Uh, she's known for being the first woman senator to be elected in Illinois, and plus to be one of the first elected with a, a significant handicap. She lost two of her legs in Iraq. And not only would it, that have helped um, Biden's performance with veterans and active combat vets, uh, but also would have helped Biden's performance in the Midwest. Um, she's broadly popular in Democratic circles in Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, and Indiana. Um, while some of these states would not have swung to Biden like Indiana or Ohio, the margins would have been significantly closer. And then finally, Tulsi Gabbard. Um, Tulsi Gabbard is a more of a controversial choice, mostly because of how she was treated by the media in 2020. Uh, she was painted as a Russian asset, uh, being broadly out of touch with the party, and a lot of that has to deal with Tulsi Gabbard um, being the co-chair of the DNC during the 2016 election cycle, um, endorsing Bernie Sanders, which with Hillary being assumed the ordained candidate for the Democratic Party in 2016, uh, rubbed a lot of Democrat um, strongholds and just establishment figures very wrong. And so as a result, 
Her popularity within democratic circles has been relatively poor, with the exception of the progressive wing of the party. Um, but she polls incredibly well with Republicans. And so if you have the ability to take some elements of the Republican populist and bring them back into the Democratic fold, you have the possibility to swing some of these um, more populous states like Pennsylvania, like Ohio, like Michigan, Wisconsin, more decisively in your corner. And it's because of that likability on the other side of the aisle. And Biden's sort of popularity with, or as a known quantity within Democratic circles could have easily balanced out Tulsi Gabbard's unlikability with some elements of the Democratic Party. And plus, you have the perception of party unity between centrist and progressive circles, which would have brought more progressives into the fold. And as a result, your performance would have likely been better. Third and finally, um, the quote-unquote basement strategy was the best and worst strategy the Biden campaign could have had for this election cycle. Um, it was his best asset because it allowed Trump to steal the spotlight and make himself look like an ass. And because of that, Biden didn't have to make the case against Trump. Trump made it for himself. Um, the reason why it was also the worst strategy is because that means Biden can't come out and make a name for himself and put himself as the voice of reason. And so what he should have done more is actively promoting his gray strength, which was stability and being an unknown variable on cable television doing this at campaign events and web events would have helped as well um but here's the problem with this particular um solution to where but how biden could have improved this result improved his results um in his advanced age this may not have been something that could have been accomplished he is 78 right now and by the time he completes the end of his first term he'll be 82 the oldest president in american history um as a result uh humans don't age like fine wine we don't get better in age um, biden in particular with his many gaffes in the few times he was doing press events or campaign events were numerous um biden has always been known for his gaffes but most of them have been harmless, um, especially in the 1996 elect uh, election cycle when he ran, and then obviously in 2008 where he ran again. Um, but the gaffes became more harmful to his campaign and more frequent. As a result, um, this solution may have been more wishful thinking, um, but some of this could have been done if they just actively trained him and scripted him to where even if he sounded like a guy who was being consistently briefed by polling groups at least he's out there projecting the strength that gave him the edge in this election which is being a known variable a known quantity and being an arbiter of stability and so we move on into what impact does this have on the 2020 election what does all rather screw up my words here pardon me um what impact does the 2020 election have on the 2022 midterms and the 2024 general this sort of needs to start with a evaluation of the results that we got in this cycle biden despite winning the presidency won by a margin in some of these important swing states that could have swung the other direction by less than 55,000 votes plus a likely divided Congress, as I've said, 50-50 or possibly 51-49, and a weakened House majority. He is the president 
of the United States. But he has virtually no mandate to rule outside of being a calming hand, a voice of reason, and a presence which the country sees as his one and only mandate, which is to be calming hand and a voice of reason. But knowing his extensive Senate background and his time as vice president, he will have a desire to have a legacy that is greater than being the calming presence. This threatens his stance with everyone that defected from Trump to him in the 2022 midterms into 2024 that will likely return to the Republican fold. So how does he do this? He does it by doing this. Undoing all the executive orders signed by Trump that Biden thinks are against his own party interests. Some of these include um, returning the individual mandate, which has been uh, not enforced under Trump, uh, ending the collective health insurance bargaining groups advocated by Rand Paul and implemented by Trump, um, ending the construction of the wall, a notable party piece with the white working class and just working class in general, and then four, ending the halts in immigration that were implemented during the coronavirus pandemic to control any possible inflows of coronavirus and to, in general, provide open markets for Americans to return to the job market, etc. Another way he does this, attempting to push a massive green stimulus or tax increases through the House and failing to get them through the Senate. Um, doing this for polit perceived political points could easily backfire as green stimulus despite what public polling may say, in often many Pew polls, climate change and green stimulus are almost always at the very bottom of what the concerns are. Concerns in American public polling right now are pandemic, healthcare, and the economy. If Biden does all three on a bipartisan consensus, he could easily win a general election. Uh, but because doing that basically sacrifices his ability to have a notable legacy that are things that are biden um they're very likely not going to happen and so what are we looking at in the 2022 midterms even if biden doesn't do any of this all the things i mentioned which isn't likely he suffers from the lack of a mandate people gave him in 2020 reps controlling the senate 51 49 or at least balancing Democrats 50-50 with some possibility of Democratic defectors from Arizona and West Virginia means no treaties like Iran or the Iran nuclear deal or the Paris Climate Accord can never become permanently official. Because as of right now, both of those deals are implemented through the executive branch, which means a Republican president and the next election cycle could easily come in and leave them and make them unenforceable. That's what Trump did in his term 2016 to 2020 and it's what biden's going to return to 2020 to 2024 and if when we're if republicans win 2024 they will undo and if they win a majority in the senate they will make them permanently ineligible to be returned to um dems barely retaining the house increases the chances of progressive defection despite the numerous losses progressives have suffered in the 2020 election cycle notably the collapse of the bernie sanders campaign the, the squad, um, AOC plus three, has become AOC plus nine. And so with Pelosi's majority only being 23 to 22 people, when the needed majority in the House is 218 to control the House, 
just half of the progressives defecting from any major piece of legislation puts Pelosi's leadership at risk, meaning that Pelosi's predominant negotiating partners are not going to be progressives in her own party, but moderate Republicans on the opposite side of the aisle. As a result, because voters chose deadlock, voters will now pay the price for it, as that means no large stimulus, but the possibility of a skinny stimulus that maintains the status quo or slows the economic decline are more likely. As people almost always punish the president and his party for a weak economy, even if it wasn't their fault, Biden goes into 2022 incredibly weak, especially since his nomination drove out people to vote Republican, even if they voted for his presidency. An inverse tailcoat event, if you would. This will lead Biden to not actively to be actively campaigning in the 2022 midterms and basically allowing the DCCC, the organization that manages Democratic campaigns traditionally, to manage them autonomously away from Biden. Now, Biden may not even be able to campaign at this point, but his notable absence means that Democrats will be on the defensive in the Senate and House elections in the 2022 midterms. As a result, Republicans are likely to pick up at least one or two seats in the 2022 midterms as the map is less favor favorable for Democrats as more Democrats are up for re-election in 2022 than Republicans. And the House is likely to flip to Republicans in suburban and other competitive districts where the absence of Trump being in office allows suburban and moderate voters to pick more moderate Republicans to be elected. As a result, Biden stays president, but he loses his very slight control over the House. And likely, even if the Senate is 50-50, likely returns to the Republican fold in 2022. Now, when we talk about the 2024 general election, because of Biden's advanced age, Democrats will likely pressure not for him will likely pressure him into run, not running for a second term. Biden is the oldest president in American history, and his performance will not improve with age, which means if he runs again in 2024, he is likely to lose. Regardless if he's done good, he is likely to lose. This means both Republicans and Democrats are going to be engaged in active primaries for the presidency when stability in the country likely has not gotten better but not gotten worse. As a result, the Democrats will likely put up a, a couple of notable candidates, which I think will be in the this the top 10. Um, Kamala Harris will run on Biden's legacy, but tried to mention the things she pushed as VP that she did independently of Biden, basically trying to run as Biden's legacy, but also being independent of Biden. It's a very, very tough sort of line to push. Second, Pete Buttigieg will likely run again with now deeper federal experience as the Secretary of the Transportation, which was his biggest weakness in the primaries in 2020, his perceived lack of federal experience. Andrew Cuomo and Gavin Newsom, governors of New York and California, will likely run on their records as governors and their handling of the coronavirus in their respective states. Cuomo is more moderate than Newsom and will likely be more successful than Newsom. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is the loudest progressive voice remaining and might put her name in the ring in 2024, as she will be 35, thus eligible to run. However, she's unlikely to succeed as Bernie did in 2016, which was less progressive than his 2020 primary campaign. 
mean, which means Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez could have a strong performance, but one that sees her as fourth and fifth and not first and second. Finally, Andy Bashir, sort of a dark horse candidate from the Democrats, as he's one of the few Democratic governors in a blood red state where his polling is still broadly positive, which can make him a serious contender as a Democratic moderate to run in these sort of red states or just moderate swing states in general. Republicans will likely see a slate of new candidates to the fold, unlike 2016, which saw a lot of old faces with the exception of Trump being the new face. In this scenario, I'm assuming Trump doesn't run for a second term. In every occasion, Trump has been asked, what would you do differently? Running in 2016, he has always said, I wouldn't run. It's no secret that he doesn't like being president. Um, Bob Woodward's books make that clear. John Bolton's recounting of his time with the Trump administration makes that clear. Um, Trump had no expectation of being elected, but he didn't want to lose either. And so I cannot blame him for wanting to return to private life. A second run for president would likely weaken his finances further and likely do him no favors. It is likely that he will make the same calculus and choose to retire. But that doesn't mean he won't stay out of Republican politics. He is likely to be an active campaigner and not, and very likely an influencer in the primary as well. So that's where we start talking about candidates. Ron DeSantis of Florida will likely be the front runner as not only is he popular with Trump's base, he's the governor of Florida, I forgot to mention, but he's popular with Trump's base, but he has a record that can appeal to moderate Republicans and independents in a general election cycle. Very simply, Trumpism without the Trump. Nikki Haley, former South Carolina governor and ambassador to the United Nations, will likely be the champion for the Romney base of the party, composed of national security hawks and fiscal conservatives. However, unfortunately, she suffers from many of the characteristics that Hillary suffered from in 2016, in that she desperately wants power for the sake of power and is perceived as corrupt. Nikki Haley will probably be placed third or fourth in a primary, but not likely stay in the campaign past the South Carolina or North Carolina primaries. Ted Cruz, a senator from Texas and placed second in the 2016 Republican primary, has presidential aspirations as his uh, more public media persona and creation of his own podcast have moved him more into the public sphere. But he's also been able to walk that very thin line of being popular with the populist side of the party, popular Trump's base, but also with fiscal and national security hawks that Nikki Haley would appeal to. Unfortunately, his low likability numbers, while improved since his 2016 run, will hamper him in a general, even against a weak Democratic candidate. He is very likely a VP pick. Senator Josh Hawley, senator from Missouri, has some very core populist leanings, but is perceived weak on social issues which still remain core to the Republican Party with or without the realignment from the Romney base, which is predominantly um, corporate national security hawk conservatives, fiscal conservatives, to the working class Trump base. As a result, Josh Hawley will likely also be a VP contender, but probably one of the weaker picks that a uh, primary winner and Republican primary would be. Then finally, sort of another dark horse candidate. I have dark horse candidates for both parties. Tucker Carlson, who is the very popular Fox News anchor. He is considered a thought leader 
and the populist parts of the Republican Party and can articulate the message better than anyone else. However, he has made it very clear and very public that he has a very well-paying job at Fox and he isn't necessarily willing to walk away from it since he has a very large and very young family. And honestly, I can't blame him. Um, have about to having my first child as well and not wanting to be involved in politics. It can cost a lot on a family and it could be a very large burden. But he is a popular, he is a possible dark horse primary challenger. As a result, when we look at the 2004 election cycle, we're likely going to see this sort of chaos we saw in the 2060 election cycle um, with the added benefit that there is no guaranteed Democratic successor. Uh, the Democratic establishment will likely want to crown Kamala Harris as the successor to Biden. The problem is, is that her broad um, unlikability numbers make her less likely to succeed, even if she has a background to run on as being vice president. This gives other challengers like Pete Buttigieg, Cuomo, and Newsom an edge that she doesn't have, as all these people have higher likability numbers and either performed fairly well and better than her in the 2020 primary cycle, like Pete Buttigieg. And then for the 2024 um, primaries for Republicans, it is essentially a civil war between the Romney parts of the party versus the Trump parts of the party. With Trump's popularity of 85% within the Republican Party, it is very likely that the Republican Party is going to stay populist. The thing is, though, that doesn't mean a moderate Republican can't have at least a bit of an outsized performance in the 2024 primary as well, which has the potential to cause a lot of chaos and a lot of division within the Republican Party, very similar to 2016. Luckily for Trump, moderates came out to vote and Republican moderates in general came out to vote for him in 2016 and came out to vote for him in 2020, but independents didn't. And so having a candidate in the Republican Party that can have the populist policies of Trump without the sort of sporadic inconsistency of public messaging and in general lack of federal government or government experience will likely be a successful candidate in the 2024 election cycle, making Republicans poised to not only return to the majority in the House and the Senate, but also the presidency. And so that concludes the fourth episode of this podcast. Um, these podcasts are starting to be, in general, about an hour. I went an hour and two minutes here. And so I'm hopefully trying to keep – some of these topics are very big, um, like the South American podcast. The second part, I think, was an hour and a half. Um, I'm trying to keep these to about an hour, if not a bit shorter, because when you go long, people just can't listen. It, I could understand that. Um, some podcasts, you just, you just can't. Um, but in general, I'm still thinking of topics for podcast number five. And so um, keep posted on social media and the exchange where I know some of you listen from. And so I'll keep some topics in mind and maybe I'll do a fun one, like just random, like Algeria, talking about Algeria or Botswana, maybe, um, or supply chains around renewable energy. A lot of things to float around, a lot of things to keep in mind. But otherwise, I hope you enjoyed this podcast and found it fairly informative and fairly um, even and balanced. Um, this election was a mess 
and it was one that should have gone very differently. Um, but like what, like what a lot of people said, Trump could have a successful presidency if there wasn't a crisis. If there was a crisis, Trump was likely to lose. And that looks like that's exactly what panned out. And so, again, uh, this will be posted on Wednesday, which will be New Year's Eve. And then I think it's New Year's Eve, if I'm correct. No, it's going to be the eve of New Year's Eve. Um, and then New Year's Eve is on Thursday. Um, some of you who are going to be listening are be listening on Wednesday or Thursday. Um, happy holidays. Happy New Year. Again, my New Year's resolution is to work out almost every day of the week. And I hope many of you have as very ambitious um, New Year's Eve resolutions as I do. And hopefully stick to them, which I, I hope to do. <laughs> so have a good day, everyone. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. And take it easy. Cheers.